You're listening to Manufactured with Kim von der Weert, and this is a podcast about sustainability and the making of fashion. Join me every week in conversation with the people who manufacture what we wear. If you listen to the season opener, you'll know that one of the changes this season is the introduction of guest co-hosts. Today's guest co-host is someone I feel so fortunate to be able to partner with. She's incredibly sharp, articulate, and knowledgeable, and it's getting to connect with people like her that have made doing this show so fulfilling. So without further ado, I'd like to introduce Gori Sharma, my guest co-host for today, Senior Manager for Organizational Development at Shahi Exports, one of India's largest apparel manufacturers. She's also co-founder of SUS, a rapidly growing community of students, entrepreneurs, professionals, and consumers in India, driving meaningful change in the fashion industry. And she's actually been on the show before, but as a guest to talk about her work with Shahi back in season three in episode 27 and 28. So be sure to go back and check those out if you haven't already tuned in. In addition to her work with SAS and Shahi Exports, Gori also recently completed a Master's in Sustainability Leadership at the University of Cambridge. Her research there was focused on supply chain partnerships and their role in the transition to a circular economy. Her research, as well as her role within Shahi, uniquely position her to interview our guest today, Matthew Wallace, CEO of DXM. DXM is a lot of different things, and I've been trying to get someone to on the show to talk about it since I first heard about it sometime last year. Because as regular listeners will know, one of my favorite topics is equitable distribution of financial risk across fashion supply chains. So what could be more up my alley than talking to the CEO of a company that's co-owned by brands, suppliers, and beyond? But I digress. I suppose the simplest way to introduce DXM would be to say that they are a manufacturing company that does local, on-demand production. But really, they're so much more than that. And as Matthew would say, they're a whole ecosystem. And as I've already alluded to, there are several founding partners, four suppliers, Shahi Exports, Brandex, Mass Holdings, and Busana, and one brand, Carhartt. But I'll let Matthew tell you more about that. In this episode, part one of our chat, Matthew shares a bit about his family's history in the world of fashion and how that's led to what he's doing now. We then get into what exactly DXM does and what the impetus for its founding was. In part two of our conversation, also out today, we get into more detail about why exactly these are the partners who are involved in the project, what the process for bringing together such massive competitors was actually like, what the fashion industry can learn from other industries, and what the social and environmental implications of the DXM model might be. One last quick announcement. If you're a manufacturer, I have got an exclusive event open only to manufacturers that you won't want to miss. It's a supplier meetup hosted by the Asia Garment Hub, and we'll be joined by Miran Ali, Star Network spokesperson, and I will be there as well. The conversation will be unrecorded informal, and all about the Sustainable Terms of Trade initiative. 
The Sustainable Terms of Trade Initiative is the supplier-led call for minimum standards on purchasing practices led by the Star Network, the International Apparel Federation, the Better Buying Institute, and supported by GIZ Fabric. The event is virtual and takes place on Monday, 8 November at 8 a.m. CET, 1 p.m. Dhaka time, 2 p.m. Phnom Penh time, and 3 p.m. Hong Kong time. Miran will share a couple of updates and the rest of the session will be open to Q&A. Check out the link in the show notes for more information. This podcast is a passion project and a labor of love. Support the show by following me on Instagram at manufactured underscore podcast or sign up for the bi-weekly newsletter at www.manufacturedpodcast.com for an overview of the latest episodes, articles I've recently published, and links to off-the-beaten-path reading. If you'd like to support the show financially, you can make a Patreon donation at www.manufacturedpodcast.com. Last but not least, don't forget to leave a review on iTunes and hit subscribe. This helps other people find the show, and I'd really love your help with that. So Matthew, I want to start a little bit uh, with your personal story, because I think it's I don't know, I just thought it was a really interesting entry point into this world. And so I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about your family's history, which I understand you've been in the fashion industry for generations, and why then you decided to enter the industry and how this sort of ties to what you're you're doing now. Yeah, well, one, thank you uh, both for, for having me. I appreciate it. It's good to, to see both of you. Um, yeah, family history. Uh, I, you know, I think I was destined to be in this industry. Uh, for, so really, since I was born, my grandfather actually started to, uh, doing contract manufacturing in the mid-1950s in the state of New Jersey in the United States. And really, um, it just, uh, I, was, I was born in 69, and it seemed like uh, every holiday, whether, whether it be a non-denomination holiday or uh, a holiday for any type of religion. We had such a diverse staff they had there. Uh, we were celebrating at the factory um, with, with whether it be Christmas presents or other, other type of uh, things. And I just remember being there all the time. And then really what happened was it was very early in 19, I think it was 1970, 71. My grandfather actually became ill. And they told my father at the time, who was I believe 16 or 17, that he probably wasn't going to make it. Now, of course, we all know back then medical treatments, not quite as good as they are today. And my father actually dropped out of uh, high school for a bit to go work and essentially took over the factory. Um, footnote there, my grandfather lived till he was 90. Um, so nonetheless, <laughs> and actually worked till he was 88 in the same facilities. So but really, as my father then took it over, second generation came in. Um, he actually went back to school and finished uh, a few things there and really looked to progress the business from where it was. And I think historically what's interesting is, and most people won't really recognize these names, but there, there was a company called Villager outside of uh, in the Philadelphia area. And that company actually uh, housed a lot of people. Uh, that formed other organizations. Uh, historically, you could look them up uh, into um, ties into Liz Claiborne, actually ties into Stanley Blacker, ties into J.G. Hook. And they were all working there really as production people. And my family was cutting and making uh, for pennies uh, in New Jersey. Eventually, that got built up to four facilities, about 500 people, a union facility, all of them were. 
And I just, over my teenage years, those were my summer jobs. I started out cleaning the floors uh, and I really had done almost every operation in the factory over, over uh, the course of when I was about 12 years old until uh, I was about 18. Uh, and I just felt it was in my blood and I was destined to, to go into the industry, uh, focused on business at the university, uh, and then uh, finished uh, by going to Philadelphia College of Textiles and Sciences uh, for further classes. And uh, I think within days of coming out of university, I was uh, working uh, at the facility and eventually uh, took over and ran one of the factories for uh, about a year and a half. Eventually, we wound up closing that in the uh, early 90s. But uh, uh, I would say, yeah, it definitely runs in my blood um, pretty, uh, pretty thick at this point. And re- really, that's what got me, got me started into, into the industry. Uh, it was really family history. It, it was camaraderie with, with people, uh, especially employees. So you've um, had a, a number of different or come engage with the fashion industry in a number of different ways, I think, since leaving uh, this family business. Yeah. Um, can you just give a quick overview of that? Sure. So we actually went up selling the company in 2002, 2003 to a public apparel company based in New York. Uh, I had become uh, the EVP of operations, if you will, manufacturing and got involved in other other uh, facets of, of the business. Uh, certainly got involved in the front end a lot more um, uh, tied to the designers, tried to understand what it was um, that they were trying to accomplish so we could then uh, both facilitate that on the operations side, the manufacturing side, the, the logistics uh, distribution side of things. Um, from there, I moved into a portfolio company of a private equity organization, and that was really bringing the supply chain together of, of those uh, portfolio companies that they had owned. Um, and uh, that, that worked for a couple of years, but uh, just didn't see it. And I broke off and, and actually uh, consulted. I consulted with uh, one apparel company and mainly though outside of the industry in spaces more in the consumer products goods area. And it was really, really interesting. German-based company. Um, and I believe the people I was working for, their grandfather had invented the squeegee that cleans windows. So if any of you walk around anywhere, it doesn't matter whether it be Europe or India, and you see green and white cleaning a window, whether it be at uh, just an office building or a Starbucks, it, it says Unger on it. And I think they own about 60, 70% of the market share. I learned a lot there about tooling and, and other things. And I also learned about how the CPG industry um, was treating the supply chain. And it was different than the apparel industry was treating the supply chain. It just was. So it gave me great insight into uh, another space, if you will. From that consulting, I do want to mention that, that I moved on to work for Walmart, also mm. not the apparel space. Uh, so again, great learnings and experience there in different areas. And then PVH Corp. So went back into my heritage of apparel with the company that I owned, Calvin Klein um, and Tommy Hilfiger at the time in the supply chain space. Let's fast forward to the present. Okay. So we're, I want uh, we're going to ask you a little bit to tell you a little bit about the origins of DXM. But before we get into the sort of sto- whole story, but, you know, how you came to the conclusion that this was something that was needed. Can you just give a quick overview of what DXM is, what DXM does, where you do it? DXM, thanks for the segue. Um, so, so what is it? Um, well, DXM is... Uh, people ask me that all the time. Are you a technology company or are you a manufacturer? Well, 
we're actually an ecosystem that encompasses both. We are driven by technology and we do garner a lot of data and information, uh, but we're really uh, offering both on-demand and small batch manufacturing driven by that technology uh, very, very quickly. So it is a business-to-business model, not a direct-to-consumer model. And what we're looking to do is really help businesses, brands, and retailers become more consumer-centric. Because for too long, it's taken way too long of calendars to get a consumer like yourselves and myself a product. And how could anybody possibly predict what today's Generation Z Young millennials want 12 months or even six months out. So what we sought to create was an organization that could help those larger, smaller, medium-sized startups right, plug into a platform that can serve the consumer very quickly, locally, that will deliver on a promise of being more sustainable. So like, what kind of data are you talking about exactly And does it have something to do with, like, how are you tackling this? Because if if you are trying to sort of make the right product at the right time, either you're looking at it from the forecasting side and you're getting better at predicting what people want, or you're getting better at it on the sort of production side in terms of being able to make things faster. Yeah. So first of all, I want to make sure that uh, on that DXM does not actually capture any personal information that lays with the company, the brand, the retailer. Um, so you should know that the data that we capture is around um, the preferences anonymously of the consumer. So on a gene, if you will, what, what type of length uh, are they using or an athletic legging, or, if you will, right on a shirt, what type of collar, what type of cuff. Uh, and then we take uh, data with regard to, that person's uh, age, that person's uh, height, weight, anonymously. And what we do is we put that into machine learning uh, algorithms through our technology partnerships there, and we learn. We're trying to help with that data eliminate and reduce returns and allowances for online businesses. So where exactly are you producing and which parts of the production process are you doing? Because on demand can mean just for the cut and sew. It can mean yeah. also the raw material production. Yeah. Yeah. So, so I'm going to take you first to the end because I always like to start the end uh, in mind, right? The end is we're going to produce uh, locally. So North America for North America, Europe for Europe, and Asia for Asia. And, and I know there's some very big regions <laughs> when you talk about it. it. It really can't be probably one location um, in the U.S. if you want to serve that consumer as quickly as you need to. It certainly can't be one location in Europe. You probably need three from the work we've done. And Asia uh, is a, a bit broad, right? So what we want to do is, is be more centric to the area in which we're serving the consumer. And that's our end state goal, which would require probably uh, two or three locations in the U.S., two or three locations in Europe, and many locations across uh, Asia. And then I want to further go into the last part of your question is, is what parts of manufacturing are you doing? Well, uh, the shirt I'm wearing right now or the pants that I'm wearing or jeans, fortunately, unfortunately, you actually don't have manufacturing of many of those raw materials left in all the regions that we discuss. You certainly have them over where Corey is, right? 
you have them still in places in, in Europe. Uh, but as a whole, there's not a lot left in North America at this point on the woven side of things. So from the knit side of the raw materials, we'll be okay in getting them more local. From the woven side of raw materials, until the technology and until uh, the transformation back into um, the development of those raw materials, some may need to be brought in and staged at this point. So again, not completely sustainable to the degree that we want it to be, but you have to deal with what cards you have. And then what you can do is figure out what other decks you need to bring in. Okay, so if I got it right, the key to DXM then is, some, is, is something about over reducing overproduction. And if I hear you correctly, you do this in two ways. First, by making sure that the products that you make are actually the products that people want. So that's the on-demand and data-driven part of what DXM does. And second, by reducing lead time. So, and that's where the local production comes in. And I know that this probably sounds counterintuitive to a lot of people. Doesn't a shorter lead time result in more product getting to market faster? But I think the nuance to highlight here is it's about getting the right product to the market at the right time. And in fact, my personal take would be that the reason we have so much overproduction now and the reason that those products have to be so cheap is because it's a way of hedging bets. If something doesn't sell, it doesn't really cost a brand much. So personally, my take is that shorter lead times will reduce overproduction, not increase it. But I think that achieving shorter lead times also requires shorter supply chains and that supply chains will only contract or get shorter if there's a more equitable distribution of financial risk between brands and suppliers. And one of the reasons I was so excited to talk to you is because I think DXM has tackled this problem head on. And we'll get to that in a minute. That's where other industries, right, came together in an ecosystem type model and figured out that the brand or the seller of the product or even the manufacturer of the product, none of them independently can sit in their lane, right? And solve, right? The problem you just described. Yes. And we're going to get to the other industries, I promise. Um, but I think actually what you've just said is the perfect segue to give some context for how the idea for DXM even came about in the first place. You know, why was this something that you saw as a solution to certain things that were problems that were happening in the industry. And in our last chat, you specifically referred to a top to bottom business model and why that was a problem for the fashion industry and, and how DXM, at least for you, is, is at least in part an answer uh, to this. Uh, but the idea really was, um, is about three and a half years ago. Uh, it, was, it was when I was at PBH Corp and it was really, uh, look, how do we figure out and solve for local, on-demand, more sustainable, small batch, unit of one, customization, co-creation, um, personalization. Uh, let's go solve for that. And it was like, oh, okay, because the industry's really got that one knocked out at this point. And look, look credit goes to, to, to PBH Corp, who um, you know, was the company in which I was working at and gave a lot of runway to me and, and there were a couple other people there working with me on it. Um, so how it came out was an ask, go solve for that. What I just described. And it was like, really go solve for that. You, it sounds like you're trying to solve, 
you know, build Rome in, you know, from, from ruins. It just it sounds difficult, right? Doesn't it? And who's going to go do it with us? Who's going to believe it? Who's going to want to go on the journey, right? Difficult. Oh, the fabric is here. The machines aren't there. The labor doesn't exist, right? Who, are they going to pay more for it? We, we heard no, right? So how did it come about? Um, well, I would tell you that over the course of the following two years, this is pre-pandemic. I'd, I'd like to make sure everybody understands that this was not something that came out of, of the pandemic. And I met with approximately 250 to 300 companies over the course of a two-year period. Now, a lot of those companies were startups uh, in technology, some of them startups in manufacturing, if you will. Um, I traveled to Asia, uh, so I was in India. I met with a bunch of people there. There were a couple companies that helped me in the startup space, Techstars, Plug and Play. Um, I was in Silicon Valley. I was in Detroit, Michigan in the auto industry. I was put in touch with companies in Germany, uh, auto industry companies. I studied the aerospace and auto space a bit. Um, and really what I learned was, is I don't know many single organizations in this industry that could go at it alone and solve for what we were trying to solve for. So really what happened was came back uh, after talking with um, lots of different organizations who actually came and visited uh, Detroit, Michigan. And that's where we were looking to uh, plant our flag, if you will, uh, came to Detroit, Michigan, uh, organizations from all over Asia, Southeast Asia, Korea, um, and uh, some of those tech organizations that I'd, I'd met. And we assembled there and we immersed in, in a three to four day um, tour. We toured auto industry plants. We toured real estate. We met with the mayor. We met with uh, the economic councils. We met with the energy organizations uh, and really what, what um, people like Shahi and MAS and Brandex and Busana, Seya and Arvin and others were so impressed with is, wow, these guys have all the infrastructure needed here to actually manufacture right here. And that would make a lot of sense since they make a lot of cars in Detroit, Michigan and the outskirts of it, right? We found how many engineers sat in actually the state of Michigan, how many universities were supporting this advanced manufacturing how the industries moved from industry 1.0 to 4.0. So really coming out of that, what, what happened was uh, we started to talk about forming this partnership, right? And at the time we didn't call it an ecosystem, but certainly learned that from the other industries and eventually said, well, why don't we come do this together? You have the manufacturing experience. You guys have the tie into the technology industry and the technology experience. Maybe we can get the government here involved, right? And, when the mayor stood up and said, you tell us what you need, we'll do it, right? Um, and then we started talking to some of the other industries there and whatnot, and they started saying, oh, no, we, we can show you and help you, or you could become part of it. And, and what happened was, after that week, I will tell you that I was sitting in Detroit by myself uh, one evening at the hotel, and I said, I think we need to form a coalition, um, I think we need to see if everybody can come together for the betterment of the industry. We need to bring brands who have customers right away. 
the manufacturing, the technology, the academia together. And then you don't need to worry about, well, I can't build this because I don't have an order. Well, you have an order because you have a branded, right? And then the brand says, well, I can't do it because I don't have the manufacturing capability. Well, you have that. And then I don't have the technology. Nope, we have the technology partner. And then I need someone to go do a lot of work around and studying. Well, we have academia. Truly, that's what happened. I was sitting alone in a hotel um, after these meetings uh, in October 2018. And uh, it was January. And basically came and, and went back to, to PBH at the time and said, I think this is how we need to do it to make it work. Fast forward to May of 2019. We got together. We agreed that that's the way we were going to do it. We landed with six partners uh, and uh, we said we were going to meet together in the coming months to try and formalize uh, how to structure it. We did so in Sri Lanka, July 4th, 2019, uh, walked away from that meeting. And uh, from there, DXM was born and incorporated as a Delaware C corporation in August of 2019, credit to Um, six great organizations at that point. And speaking of partnership, I want to hand over to Gori here because I know that this is a topic that Gori has spent a lot of time thinking about. Thank you. Thanks, Matthew. Um, Yeah, it would just be good, you know, for the audience to understand who are these six partners um, and what was the process like to kind of bring some of these partners together who are actually competitors um, you know, what challenges did you face? What were the barriers? And what kind of, what did they feel were the benefits of coming together? And why did they agree to do this? And on that cliffhanger of a question, we're going to close part one of this episode, but be sure to tune into part two to hear Matthew's answer, and then some. Thank you for listening to Manufactured. Support the show by following me on Instagram at manufactured underscore podcast or sign up for the bi-weekly newsletter at www.manufacturedpodcast.com for an overview of the latest episodes, articles I've recently published, and links to off-the-beaten-path reading. If you'd like to support the show financially, you can make a Patreon donation at www.manufacturedpodcast.com. Last but not least, don't forget to leave a review on iTunes and hit subscribe. This helps other people find the show, and I'd really love your help with that. 